This will be the third message on uh, this prayer of Jesus, just to remind you uh, where we have been. So we're, he's finishing up this, sometimes called the high priestly prayer. Some have called this the Lord's Prayer. Um, so let's pick up with verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will, will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Let's bow together. Lord, will you help us in these few moments? Help us to, to know you better because we have heard the Lord Jesus pray to you, Father. Lord, will you teach us, but but even more than that, will you give us even a deeper love for you? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have, uh, through my ministry, periodically been asked uh, a question somewhere along these lines. Typically, it's from an unbeliever. And the question is about denominations. If you, if you say you believe this about Jesus, what about all these other denominations? How do you explain that. How many of you have been asked a question about denominations? Okay, yeah. 
it's a question that kind of hangs out there. And, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like saying, well, everybody's free to be Presbyterian Church in America if they would like to be. And, and we'd just have one denomination. I never really actually say that, by the way. That's one of those in here. We're going to deal with that in just a moment. And it needs to be dealt with. But it needs to be dealt with because it's very clear that in, in this prayer, Jesus prays about our unity, about our oneness. So let's take a look at, at this passage, and we'll get back to that question in a, in a couple of moments. We see, first of all, this, uh, this prayer for unity. So let's step back and, uh, and think about this for a minute in our, uh, our last two sermons from John. Uh, we've been in this, this passage in John 17, and we see literally hours before Jesus goes to the cross. He prays to his Father. And, and we have this incredible opportunity to eavesdrop, to hear in, in these hours, what's Jesus going to say to his Father? And he started out by praying for himself, which was good for all of us because of the task that was before him. And then last week, we, we looked at him praying for his disciples and how many of those things do carry over to us. But here at, at, at the end, he's actually praying for us, for his church, for his church that was to come. Look at, look at what it says in verse 20, I do not ask. Uh, for these only, he had just prayed for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who will believe in Jesus. That's his church. Now, I want you to think how you would be praying at this point. You, you just heard what he prayed. But of all the things the church needs, of all the things that the church would need to be protected, to grow, to thrive, to advance, what would Jesus ask for? And he prays for a unity. All the things. I have to say, if I was instructing him what he ought to pray for, I probably wouldn't have gotten to that. And that's why it's so important we, we sit at his feet and, and listen to him talking to the Father. Look, look what he says. I, and and uh, 
last week we, I told you we'd deal with it this week. Last week we saw verse 11, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 22, verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Now, I could have just read one of those and said he said it three other times, but, but I wanted you to see in this short passage, in these few seconds of prayer, how often he says these same things. That shows how important this is. Emphasizing his concern for that, for those who would believe. That's us. So let's take a look at uh, uh, biblical unity. Um, biblical unity, according to what he says here, is based on the unity of the Trinity. I know, that, that sounds like theology. Yes, it is. That is theology. So the Trinity, it's not an easy concept. We're not going to go into it uh, in much depth. But, but let, let, me, let me tell you, basically, everything we know about the Trinity. One God and three persons. Okay, that's all we know about the Trinity. Well, not totally, but... That's the gist of it. That's what we, we need to understand. So uh, the, the one God aspect speaks of the absolute unity of the Trinity. It's a mysterious union. And while we can, we can describe it, we don't have anything good that compares to it. When when. People have tried to come up with good illustrations of, of the Trinity. They always fall short, and sometimes they end up being heresy. Now, you know, they're trying, but there comes a point where we have to say, okay, this is what we know. We can't necessarily explain it, but, but we will believe this by faith. So he talks about this, this absolute Unity of the Trinity that cannot be uh, broken. And then he compares that to the unity that we should have with him and with one another. Verse 21, that they may all be one, and here it is, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Again, verse 22, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So he's talking to the Father. There is an absolute unity there. He says, that's, that's what's in our people. So in order to understand biblical unity, I want us first to understand what it's not because there's been some misuse and abuse 
of even these verses. And it can lead to some dangerous areas, some, some thin ice, uh, certainly theologically. So, let me just state one thing that it's not. Biblical unity is not institutional unity. Now, let me explain. The Roman church and the Orthodox church use these verses to say that they are the true church and any kind of uh, other denominations that have split off from them are not the true church. They might graciously at some point say they're separated brethren, but they would say they aren't a part of the true church. It's also used, and this is some of the serious ramifications, some of these verses are also used to say that sola scriptura is illegitimate. Now let me explain. Sola scriptura is one of our precious doctrines that says the scripture alone is truth. It, is, it alone is our authority. And we must submit ourselves to it. So why do they argue against that? Well, here's how the argument goes. And again, this is, would be from the Roman or even Orthodox perspective. God gave the Scripture. The reason there are many denominations is because there are many interpretations of that same Scripture. And that's why they would say that there needs to be only one interpretation of the Scripture, and it needs to come from the one true church, and there can't be other interpretations of the Scripture. Now, that's where we're going to differ with them. Obviously, we're going to disagree with their application or conclusion. Because we're going to say, yeah, there are, there are different interpretations. We can't argue with that. But we talk about the priesthood of all believers. We talk about the, how the, the Scripture is clear enough for any individual believer uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand directly from God. And then we have to acknowledge if there are many interpretations of one Scripture that some of them are wrong. And there really is only one that is right. But that's where we will not defer to another church or another individual and say, you may give the interpretation for all of us to believe. So we're going to hold on uh, to sola scripture, scripture alone, 
and understand that the unity he's praying for is not institutional unity. It goes way deeper than that. It goes way deeper than just eradicating denominations and pretending like we all believe the same thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Secondly, it's not something that we can construct. It's already there. It's up to us to acknowledge that unity and act like it's there. It's just like uh, the, the unity in the Trinity is not something that is conjured up. It's already there. Now, do you know when I've seen what Jesus is praying about here, do you know when I've seen it the most? When I've seen it the most, when I've experienced it is traveling overseas. I've had the privilege to go to a number of countries. And, you know, the first thing when you go to another country, unless it's uh, England where we speak a similar language, but if you, if you go to... Uh, most countries, the first thing you notice is we don't, we don't speak the same language. Uh, I, I preached once in, in India, and, uh, well, I preached a number of times there, but one time when I was preaching, I was in uh, a room probably similar to this in size, and there were groups all from India. It's a vast continent with hundreds of dialects, and there were five different dialects there. So I would say a phrase, and they were gathered in various groups, and then, then the, you know, each interpreter would say the phrase, and it was just a reminder of, uh, you know, what, in a way, what division there is between us. And then, then you get to customs and how you dress and how you travel and how, how they live and how we live and all of those things. And and it's, it's easy to see those kinds of, of differences. But here's the thing. With all of that, when I've traveled and I've met other believers, there's a connection there. And it's, it's what I would call a mystical union. There's no worldly reason why we should have a connection the only thing we have in common is Christ. But because we have Christ in common, it's like there's a unity here. And I'm convinced that's the kind of thing that Jesus was praying about in his prayer. It goes way deeper than the surface. Back to our question about denominations. Do denominations violate what Jesus wanted? Or is there a time to separate? When should we divide? I want to very quickly give you three passages where we see after this prayer that Jesus prayed, and his disciples heard, and they were living by this. They had seen his completed work on the cross. 
But these things took place. In Acts 19, verse 8, it says this, He entered in the synagogue for three months boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, and here's the key, speaking evil of the way, the way is, was Christianity, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. First separation we see there is, is taking these who are real believers away from these who are speaking evil of Christ in the way, rejecting believers. Romans 16, 17 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. And then there's the, a passage in uh, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, this passage, uh, let me read you the first line, then you'll know where it's going. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, typically we will apply this with Believers dating unbelievers, believers marrying unbelievers, or uh, believers having partnerships with unbelievers uh, in businesses and so on. But let me read to you, and you'll see the principles here of when there should be that division. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In other words, tied with them. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He's saying we don't have anything in common with them. We shouldn't be yoked with them. What accord has Christ with Belial, or the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Separate. And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. There is a time where we must separate. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, The Basis of Christian Unity, says, the starting point in considering the question of unity must always be regeneration or belief, trusting in Christ alone for eternal life, and belief of the truth. Nothing else produces unity and as we have seen clearly, it's impossible apart from this. So his point is this. If you don't have those two things, a, a common belief in Christ and then holding to the truth of the Word of God, then you really don't have unity. And to pretend like you've got a unity is a pretend unity. Now, Jesus goes on in the same uh, uh, paragraph and says why biblical unity is so essential for the world to see. Again, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch it? That's it. That's why a unity with other true believers is essential so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There's one sentence in between those two, very parallel sentences. Francis Schaeffer, uh, some of you are going to be familiar with, with him in, in his uh, The Mark of the Christian, which, by the way, was, uh, that was mentioned on our, our video as well. He says this. this. This is the whole point. The world's going to judge whether Jesus has been sent by the Father on the basis of something that's open to observation. In John 13 and 17, Jesus talks about a real seeable oneness, a practicing oneness, a practical oneness across all lines among all true Christians. Now, let me give you a little information about Francis Schaeffer. He came out of what many would call a separatist denomination. He served in that until he went to be with the Lord. He was in the Bible Presbyterian Church and then the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. That's the denomination I was ordained in. And it was considered um, a separatist denomination. As a whole, that denomination later joined the Presbyterian Church in America. That's, that's why we're here. He, uh, Francis Schaeffer, spoke of a co-belligerence. And he was talking about this is how we can show uh, unity, by being co-belligerent with others. Uh, he emphasized the importance of um, not falling too far into separation and not falling too far into, uh, in, into where we compromise ourselves when we make an alliance with someone else. So here's how he would have defined it. A co-belligerent is a person with whom I do not agree on all sorts of vital issues, but who, for whatever reasons of their own, is on the same side in a fight for some specific issue of public justice. Now, I want to give you two examples of that. Two very recent examples. Yesterday at the State House, there was a group of people experiencing co belligerence. It was a pro life rally. Uh, for many years, when I was in Pennsylvania, I went to the National right to life rally in Washington, D.C. And, and here's what we experience at those kinds of things. In those crowds, you will find Roman Catholics, you will find Lutherans, you will find Baptists, you'll find Presbyterians, and every other brand of, of Christian. And you will even find some who don't claim any faith at all. If you got that group together and you sat down and said, okay, let's talk theology, it would be one big argument. There wouldn't be much at all 
that many of them would agree with. But on that issue, the life issues, they all agree. And Schaefer is saying, that's good. We can stand shoulder to shoulder on that issue. And I don't have to worry about all the details of of all of what he or she believes. Because we will stand together where we agree. We also recently saw in one of our focus areas in Bulgaria, we were praying about a situation that was going on over there. There were some of their uh, government people and some, some radicals in the country that were trying to basically stamp out all religious activity except Islam and the Orthodox Church. And we didn't know, and our, our missionaries and church planners over there didn't know what this would mean if those things became law. And we prayed about it, and people all over the world were praying about it, but here's what happened inside Bulgaria. All of the religions stood up in support of one another, as it were, shoulder to shoulder, in protest of this, speaking to the government as one. They were co-belligerents and speaking to it. And those things were overturned. They were put down. God used that kind of, uh, of a unity Now, those are just two examples. Uh, In community groups tonight, we're going to be thinking about how we can stand together. But let me give you some further application in terms of this unity that Jesus is praying for. Number one, how we look at other churches and how we speak about other churches. I live six miles from St. Andrews. Every morning, and then again the afternoon or evening, I pass five other churches. And you might have passed that many coming to church this morning. And I have uh, made it a discipline of mine, especially in the morning, to pray for these other churches. Here's how I pray for them. Something along these lines. Father, in in as much as that church is faithful to your word and to the gospel, will you bless them and protect them? And I go on down the road. Father, in as much as this church is faithful to your word and to the gospel. Will you, will you watch over them? Will you help them to advance? It's helped me in terms of looking at them. I, I don't even know those pastors. I don't know. I know a few people from some of those churches. But I hope there's people going by St. Andrew's praying that kind of a prayer as well. And I think that's, that would be honoring to what Jesus is praying here. But then further, how we speak about other churches. Do we act like that they're the competition? Or even worse, that they're the enemy? May it never be. 
May that never be the case when we, when we speak of, of other churches that are faithful to Christ and to his word. You know what? If every church in our area was totally full, there'd still be uh, plenty of unbelievers out there for all of us to be reaching out to. I want them to advance. And so what should be coming out of our mouth is when we hear about another church, especially if we know anything of it, to say, oh yeah, that's a good church. Or they got a, they got a good pastor, I've heard. Or I, I, I know some, some real faithful followers of Christ in that church. Speak well of other churches. Apply our verse of the year for 2019. In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let's apply that to the other churches that, as it were, we are co-belligerents with in the advancement of the kingdom that, you know what, one day when we are with the Lord, there will not be denominations. One final thing in, in verse 26, I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Here's, I'm going to say this twice, but let me say it the first time. The Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. Let that sink in a little bit. The Father, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you're trusting in him alone for your eternal life, the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. We should be overwhelmed by that. What's it mean? In 1 John, we read God is love. Not just that He loves, He is love. And John applies it this way. If we don't love others, it's evidence that we have not experienced the love of God ourselves. Let's pray together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Will you put that deep in our heart so that it shows openly to a world that is watching 
It shows in our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.